Here's a book. The World's Religions. Lots of photographs, color, black and white, lots of different parts of the world, lots of different religions, lots of statues and idols in this. The world's religions. You know, if you look at the world's religions, there, there's such diversity, isn't there? Islam and Sikhism and Buddhism and Hinduism and animism and, and I suppose Marxism should go in there as well. And, and all these different religious uh, groups and then the Taoists and the, the Shintoists and, and the list can go on. And there's all this diversity and all these differences between them, and yet actually there is some real consistency between them. Whatever the view of, of God or, or gods in the different religions, you tend to have a deity or deities that are somehow aloof, somehow distant, somehow out of reach. That make the people who are trying to please them feel under pressure, trying to perform, trying to achieve whatever it is that you have to achieve to appease these gods uh, and maybe, hopefully, in the end, if you do everything right, maybe it all works out in the end. So you've got all these different religions, all these different views of, of God, and yet a real consistency between them. And then you come to the Bible. This is a book that claims to have been inspired by God. It claims to show us what God really is like. Uh, and the amazing thing is, as you read through the Bible or you read through Mark's Gospel... You might start to wonder, has God not read this? Because the, the, the presentation of God that we get in the gospel is so different from the presentation of gods that we get in religions. You almost wonder if God needs to read this and, and remind himself of what he's supposed to be like. He's supposed to be distant and aloof and unknowable. And yet in the gospel we see that he came and dwelt amongst us. God on two legs in our midst. We read these books and we discover that God's supposed to put loads of pressure on people and make it really tough and almost impossible and make it so they can never know where they stand ultimately. And yet the God who presents himself in the Bible, he doesn't just make it easy. He takes the burden away completely. He does it all himself. Doesn't mean it's easy, of course, to follow him, but it's absolutely easy to become a follower. It's absolutely easy to, to, to come into his family because he's paid the price. He's made the way. He's done everything that's necessary. I hope as you read through Mark's gospel, you, you don't find yourself reading and kind of imposing a, a traditional religion's view of Jesus, of God onto Jesus. Instead, there should be a freshness as you see and encounter the person of Jesus. that He wasn't glory-seeking. He wasn't all about himself. He wasn't all about making life tough for others. No, Jesus is, is winsome and gracious and loving and, and humble. Can you imagine that? A God who is humble. That's one of the reasons I know this hasn't been made up, because no human would ever come up with a God like Jesus. If we were going to make up a religion, if we were going to form a committee and design a God, which has happened more than once, We'd end up with the cold, distant, aloof, impossible to please, intimidating kind of God. But God has showed himself to us, and he's showed himself to us in the person of Jesus. And over these weeks, we've been walking a little bit with Jesus. We've been seeing him in action, doing miracles, caring for people, uh, but then telling them to stay quiet. Almost as if the reason he does the miracles is because his compassionate heart is stirred by what he sees in front of him. As opposed to some agenda trying to create a following, trying to get famous. 
That's exactly what's going on. Jesus demonstrating the the heart of God through these chapters. And eventually we come to chapter 8 where we were last week. And and Peter says, you're the Christ. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, now let me fill in the blanks. You've come this far. Now let me make sure you're clear that you cannot have the Christ without the cross. You cannot think that I'm your savior unless you realize I'm going to suffer. And he explains that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be handed over and he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. And for the next three chapters, the disciples absolutely do not get their heads around that truth. Every chapter, Jesus says it again. Every chapter, they seem to embarrass themselves just a little bit. And Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. You see, in chapter 8, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say, or the, the, the people, who do you, the people say I am? And then you, the apostles, who, who do you say that I am? They were at Caesarea Philippi, right up in the north. It's almost as if, when you read Mark, that it's all been this kind of northern campaign. If you read John, you discover they've gone up and down lots of times. But in Mark, it's all up north. And then you get to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And then he heads south. And we read last Sunday evening about this crowd that were with Jesus. And the disciples are astonished because Jesus is heading for trouble. And the crowd are fearful because they know that this isn't going to go well. If Jesus goes into Jerusalem, it's going to be a mess. I mean, every time there's been trouble, every time there's been opposition, it's been from Jerusalem all the way through the book. And now Jesus seems absolutely set on going to that place. This is not going to go well. And so we come to chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. This is what we tend to call the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday uh, message, the, the passage in the Gospels. This is the start of the Passion Week in church language. This is the start of the week that's leading to Easter. And I want us to try to understand what's going on in the way Mark presents it to us. Before we look at our Bibles, I want us to imagine Jerusalem. That's a bit of a challenge. I was thinking of putting a a map on the screen, but I thought, no, let's do it slightly differently. Let's try to imagine it with the geography that we have in the room here. Okay? Uh, This is slightly tricky, but we'll keep it somewhat simple. Jerusalem is is on a, a hill, a couple of hills. It's raised up. And so let's imagine that the platform where I am, this is Jerusalem. Okay, now Jerusalem isn't flat, nor does it have one of these, but, you know, it's raised up. And... uh, Basically, there's two, well, let's say three parts of Jerusalem that, uh, that would stand out if you visited it. There's the upper city, which is over this side. This is where the rich would live. Those with means would live in the upper city. And then down in this direction, that's the lower city. That's the poorer people. And not least because, you know, things tend to flow downhill. In fact, uh, on that thought, you go right down to the bottom of the city and you come to a gate called the Dung Gate. Imagine, it's a little bit smelly, right? And that's, that's the, the bottom end, that's where the rubbish uh, area is. Yeah, Gehenna, as Jesus called it. Ben Hinnom, this, this area in this valley where they threw their rubbish. And Jesus used that as an image of hell. And so you've got the lower city and you've got the upper city. And then in this uh, side, on the eastern side, is the Temple Mount. Big, 
area, beautifully paved with, with walls all around and in the middle of it, this glorious temple, uh, Herod's temple we call it, raising up, standing majestically over the whole city. Now, if you come to this side of the Temple Mount, uh, pretend this isn't here for a moment, uh, then you have uh, a valley, the Kidron Valley. And the valley uh, comes down uh, this side, and further down it meets the valley where there's the rubbish bin, the Ben Hinnom Valley, and it comes together, and sort of where the aisle is, the valley goes on and down and round. So that if you're sitting in this area, right where Nick and Sheila are, you, if you come around uh, that corner, you look up the valley, Jerusalem rises up before you in a, in a glorious kind of, uh, sort of uh, cascading effect with the temple, the majestic temple standing strong up here. Now across the valley, this is uh, across the Kidron, the Mount of Olives. And this is going to be important because this is referred to the Mount of Olives and Bethphage, which is really one of the suburbs. It's sort of where the olive trees grow and and that kind of creeps around in a couple of miles around the corner, little village of Bethany. That's Jerusalem. And I want you to try to imagine it because this is a key moment in the story of Jesus. This is a time where Jesus is going to do something we really haven't seen him do before. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Jerusalem was absolutely heaving. I mean, people everywhere, because this was the first of the three pilgrim feasts. In fact, probably the greatest one, the Passover feast, when uh, the Jews would come to Jerusalem. They'd come to the temple for the Passover. This was a, a great moment in the year. After the winter, in the springtime, and all the Jews coming to Jerusalem, the place was absolutely buzzing with people. If you had connections or if you were wealthy, you'd be staying in the city up in the upper part. All the guest rooms would be taken. Everything uh, was full. And maybe you had connections in the lower city. That's an option too, I suppose. But the place was full, so full, in fact, that people were staying out in the villages like Bethany and all around uh, because they, they needed to be close. In fact, many would camp right there on the hillside. You imagine the scene, this valley with, with the olive groves and in the midst of the olive trees, little shelters uh, put up, little tents. I mean, it would have been a good place to have one of those outdoor shops. I remember going to Keswick last year. Every other shop is an outdoor shop, you know, because up there everyone goes hiking and walking. And you'd want to have one of those shops if you were a businessman right there in that part of Jerusalem because there were people everywhere. And they're staying out in the, in the, the valley, in the, uh, in the hills, in the villages. And the place is a thronging mass of people. That's Jerusalem at Passover. In fact, that was part of the problem with Passover. You see, from the Roman perspective, the Jews were a bit of a nightmare. You didn't really, if you, you know, you went for your job interview as a Roman uh, top soldier and they said, okay, we're going to give you a job of governor. Oh, wow, thank you very much. What an honor. Uh, Judea. Oh, you're kidding. Really? It's kind of like the worst option. It's the, it's the one you'd send the troublemakers to. And so, uh, you'd have Judea, because in Judea, that's where the Jews live. And the Jews, they're just kind of troublesome people. They argue about silly things. 
And then once a week they just stop working and you, whatever you do, you can't get them to work at all for that day. It's just bizarre. And they, they don't eat some things, they do eat some things, and what they eat they have to kill differently. And everything's confused for the, you know, this Jewish people. And so the Romans had to come in and try and keep that under control. And as you uh, walk out of your uh, job interview in Rome, the last thing you'd hear is, oh, by the way, don't let there be a riot. <laughs> that, that was the job. Don't let there be a riot, because if there's a riot, if you fail there, you're done. You fail completely. And so the Romans were, were in charge of this area, but they didn't know how to handle it. And so for the most part, they let the locals handle things. They let the Sanhedrin, the local council, be in charge, because all the disputes were religious ones anyway. They would even had a, a temple guard, a whole group of people that, that could deal with problems. But at Passover time, you wouldn't want to leave it to the temple guard. You would want to make sure the Roman presence was huge. I don't know what day it would have happened, but it would have been around Palm Sunday when on the western side, Pilate would have arrived. Pontius Pilate riding in on his horse with his armor and the shield and the, uh, the banners and all the pomp and circumstance and hundreds of soldiers with that distinctive clink, clink, clink of Roman armor marching in perfect unison, in, in line together, arriving and heading into the fortress, looking down over the temple courts. They wanted a big presence. It's kind of like riot police, you know? When there's a big crowd and there's potential for trouble, it's good to have some police on horseback. It's good to have some police with shields, just to maintain order. And that's what the Romans did. And so as Pilate's arriving on the western side from the sea, in this great uh, pomp and circumstance, someone else is arriving on the eastern side. Let's read about it in Mark chapter 11. If you have uh, one of the blue Bibles, I think it's page 715. Let's read the first six verses and then we'll, we'll comment on it afterwards. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some of the people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Let's just think about that for a second, because this is quite unusual. And it points us to something significant here. They've come to Bethany, just around the corner. Bethphage, between Bethany and Jerusalem probably, and, and they're at this point in the journey, uh, along with a huge crowd. I mean, there's a massive crowd coming from all over, including the crowd that were with Jesus in chapter 10. A crowd of people that were, were fearful because they could sense what was coming. They knew there was going to be trouble, but they were traveling to Jerusalem. And everyone traveling would travel in on foot. You don't make a, an entry on an animal uh, at a pilgrimage feast like this. It, it's not the done thing. But Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead and he says, you go into this village, you're going to find a colt. That's like a young donkey that hasn't been ridden yet. And untie it, bring it, and, and if someone asks, this is what you tell them. Now, 
what's going on either. Either Jesus can predict the future, which I have no problem with, okay, and he knows what's going to be said and what needs to be said, or quite possibly he's arranged it. Maybe on a previous visit, maybe uh, somebody's been sent ahead some weeks before. It seems perfectly plausible that Jesus has arranged for this uh, cult of a donkey to be available. And maybe it's a little code word. When they ask you, what are you doing? You say, the Lord needs it. And they'll say, aha, this is the right people. Okay, off you go. And you see, I've got no problem with that. That's not some sort of undermine the Bible kind of view. Because the whole sense in this passage is that Jesus is doing something very deliberate here. Sometimes we we think of Jesus coming to Jerusalem, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and and somehow things kind of got stirred up, and then things got out of hand, and then things went wrong, and, and by the Friday, of course, he was killed, and what a shame. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is a man on a mission. Jesus is God on a mission. And as he comes toward Jerusalem, he knows this is a key moment. If we read Matthew and Luke and John, we'd get other details added in. Or we'd read of Jesus weeping over the city and saying, if only you knew this day what makes for peace for you. And and this sense that this is the day when the Messiah is coming to the city. Some people would even argue that the prophets had predicted this day right down to the day. So that Jerusalem should have been ready and Jerusalem should have been welcoming. Mark doesn't give us that detail. Mark doesn't give us the, the uh, Zechariah 9 quote about the, uh, the king, the Messiah, riding in on a, on a donkey. But what Mark does give us is a real sense that Jesus is deliberately doing something. And he's planned it. I mean, think back over the book. How many times has he healed people? And yet it's always somebody comes to him and and, and he responds to what he sees. Or or there's a crowd of people and they need food and so he feeds them. He doesn't plan in the Gospels very much, but he's planning here. Deliberately, strategically planning an entrance into the city. Why? Let's look at what happens. When they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. It's almost as if, it's almost as if the disciples are the cheerleaders here. And Jesus is, is quite happy for them to, to, to stir up the, the crowds a little bit and to get the crowds uh, making a noise because it's like he's trying to make a scene. It's a bit unusual for Jesus. And this is what they shout. Actually, let me read it to you from Psalm 118. This would have been very familiar territory. These Psalms 113 to 118 would have been read and sung and quoted all through the Passover week. These would be on their lips. These would be the songs they'd be singing as they arrived. And in Psalm 118, listen to some of these words. I'll just read a few Verses here. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Um, well, let's drop down to verse 13. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Uh, Verse 17, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Verse 21, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. You get the theme here, a lot of salvation and God at work. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, Hosanna, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 27, with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. These are the words they're quoting. Words that are shot through with, with this sense of God is the one who delivers. God is the one who saves. God's right hand can deliver us. God is the one who can bring salvation. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a great big war horse, but on a donkey, the cheerleaders, the disciples start singing. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the crowd starts building because there's a crowd with him already. And there's a a lot of other people around. And I don't actually agree with this idea that that five days later the same people are going to change their minds. No, these are the people that had come with Jesus. These, These were people who were camping in the Kidron Valley. Probably people that have come down from Galilee. Maybe people that have had their eyes opened. Maybe people that have had a relative healed or or who've been fed as part of the 5,000. These are the people that that, that Jesus is their hero. Here's the Galilean hero, the one from Nazareth. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these songs are rising and building. And even uh, more overtly, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine the stir this was causing? As this group of people, maybe a couple of hundred, are singing and chanting, praising Jesus as if he is the Messiah. Quite a moment, isn't it? As he comes around the Mount of Olives, down across the Kidron Valley, and up into Jerusalem. The other Gospels tell us that the religious leaders were there as well. They heard it and they rebuked Jesus and told him to rebuke his disciples. And Jesus said, well, if they're quiet, the stones are going to shout. And so obviously the leaders knew what was going on. And I think that's the real issue here. This isn't Jesus suddenly becoming a glory hunter. This isn't Jesus saying, okay, fine, let me, uh, let me build a kingdom now. Now, this is Jesus making a very deliberate statement to get the attention of the right people. He wants the leaders of the nation to see and to hear and to react. Verse 11, it's kind of interesting. Jesus entered Jerusalem. 
and he went to the temple. Here it is. Here's Jesus. Here's the king riding in on a donkey, just like Solomon had as king. And now he comes to the temple, all the, the symbolism, all the moments, all the, this is it. This is it. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Oh. Bit of a letdown, isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine? That there's all this hype, all this building tension, and the crowds are singing, and the Pharisees and the leaders are angry, and, and Jesus comes, and he goes into the temple, and he has a look around. Oh, well, getting late, let's go back. And they go back to Bethany. Isn't that weird? Why would you spend the whole day arranging transport, traveling in, big hurrah, little wander around and head back again? The reason you do that is if that was the purpose. You see, Jesus didn't come in and take up arms and, and kick out the Romans. That was never the plan. He came in so that he would be seen. To get the attention of the religious leaders and then he headed back out to Bethany. Next day, he comes again. A little incident happens with a fig tree. We won't get into that, but it, it, it's a message for his disciples so that they can understand that just like the fig tree, Israel is full of color, full of vibrancy. It seems to be so real, but there's nothing there. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, not because he's against the fig tree or not because he forgot what time of year it was or anything like that, but because he wanted his disciples to understand what he would do next. And so verse 15 on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. You see, that's the point. If Jesus' goal was to come into Jerusalem and to stir up a revolution, he's going about it all wrong. He should have sneaked in, a little bit of incognito. He should have come in amongst the crowds like he does in John 7, and they're wondering, is he here, is he here? He could have done that, he's done it before, but no, this time he comes in with fireworks displays. Because he wants to get their attention. And the next day he comes in and he starts turning over the tables. Can you imagine the scene? One man, woo, turning the temple uh, courts into an uproar. The, the tables uh, clattering over, the, the, the piles of coins scattering over the, the stone floor, and people scrambling after them. The, the animals making all sorts of noise and the birds flapping as the cages open. Uh, and the people said, oi, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Jesus is just stirring it all up. And he's making sure, imagine the Romans watching saying, we've got to watch this one. This, this could get out of hand. And so behind the scenes, maybe hundreds of soldiers strapping on their swords, getting ready to squash the riot if it takes off. But Jesus isn't concerned about them. He wants the leaders to know. He wants their attention. You are like a fig tree with no fruit in it. You, you look like you're something, but there's nothing here. It's empty. It's religion. There's no reality. And so what's the response? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. 
We've got to realize that Jesus did not come into the city and things got out of hand and eventually the whole revolution went pear-shaped and he ends up getting killed. What a shame. What a martyr. What a hero. What a shame. None of that. Jesus came as the Messiah. A man sent from God. God in a man's uh, form. A man on a mission. And he wanted to make sure that that mission would be fulfilled. He wanted to make sure that the leaders of Israel would sit up and take note of him now. For ten chapters he's been keeping things quiet, not anymore. Now he wants their attention. Not because he's attention seeking. But because he is attention grabbing. And he wants them to realize who he is. He wants their attention, not for his own sake, but because of the mission that he's come to fulfill. Jesus came. What did he tell us in chapter 10? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes absolutely sure that come Friday, they will kill him. Why would he do that? It sort of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? If it was an accident, if, if things got out of hand, then, then sad. Genuinely regretful, but, but sad, and, and, and we could move on. But, but when you see how intent he was, when you see that he predicted it, when you see that he goes out of his way to, to get their attention on the Sunday and out of his way to get their attention on the Monday, and if you follow him through the week, he does everything absolutely wrong all week if his goal is to stay alive. But you see, that was not his goal. His goal was to die. He had come from heaven to earth to die on the cross on that Good Friday. And in order to make that happen, he made sure that he got the attention of the right people. Makes me wonder, if we fast forward 2,000 years, Jesus today alive in heaven, is he, is he sitting there, arms folded, saying, well, I've done my part, over to you, take it or leave it, I don't really care what your response is. I, I kind of don't think so. Jesus was so purposeful, so deliberate, that it seems to me that it's not too much of a stretch to suggest that maybe Jesus continues to be that purposeful today. He wants attention, he's trying to get it, and he can get it. And as we sit here this morning, I wonder, are we responsive to him? Are we alert to Jesus? Because it's Easter time. And humans are incredibly good. We're all good, aren't we? At letting significant things slide by as if they're insignificant. But I think Jesus wants our attention. Not for the sake of his own glory or anything like that, but for our sake because he came to die as a ransom for many. And so I wonder, is Jesus trying to get our attention? As individuals, as families, as a church? Maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, it's funny you should say that, because I've never thought too much about all this Christian stuff, but this year, for some reason, I can't get my mind off it. It's like everywhere I turn, someone says something or I see something. Maybe that's Jesus trying to get your attention. Maybe you're, you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I've been a Christian for decades. I'm, I'm okay. Really? Maybe Jesus is trying to get your attention too. 
to realize that he came not uh, in some sort of mission that went wrong and, and it all worked out okay in the end because he rose from the dead, which is always a nice way to end the story. No, he came to die. And he came to die for you and for me. To give his life as a ransom, to pay a price to buy us back. I wonder if maybe we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened. Maybe we need to have our attention grabbed so that in some way we will respond to this Jesus who has gone out of his way to get our hearts tuned into him, to get our focus fixed on him. He's done everything he possibly can. He's died on the cross and maybe he's even working in our circumstances this Easter. But the question for us is this. Do we honor Jesus for who he is? Do we recognize him for what he came to do and for for who he was and, and the fullness of all the Bible teaches? Do we really grasp that? Because if that grasps us, it will turn our lives absolutely upside down. It will influence the way we live, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we interact. It will influence the choices we make. Just take stock for a moment. And say, okay, if, if someone was watching my life, let's say that there, there was a, a, a spy and they put cameras all around my home and they bugged my phone and they were checking my emails. And if someone was watching me, would they think that Jesus has got my attention? Or would it look like Jesus is not that important? Palm Sunday is all about Jesus getting attention in order to fulfill his mission. The question is, has he got our attention? And if he has it, what is the response of our hearts? Is it to say, you came and you died for me, I need you. I'm a sinner, I deserve nothing but judgment, I need you, Jesus, would you please forgive me for what I've done, I want to place my trust in you, I want you to get a hold of my life and transform me from the inside out, is that your response? Is your response, Jesus, I've been following you for years, uh, and yet I realize it's grown a bit stale. It's become a bit normal. I take it for granted. I've even started thinking that maybe Easter is about chocolate. I'm sorry, Lord. Because Jesus wants all of us to give him the attention that he is worthy of, that he deserves. Not because he's self-seeking, but because he's self-giving. And the question is, do we say, Lord, you've got my attention. I'm all yours. I'm all ears, I'm all eyes, I want to see you, I want to know you, I want to respond to you, because it's all about you. Palm Sunday wasn't just a little fizzing moment of of potential that disappeared. It was a deliberate move on Jesus' part, a deliberate strategy to get attention and to set the wheels of his own death in motion. How do we respond to that. Lord, we bow before you this morning and we ask you to get a grip on our hearts. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have become stale, the times when we have viewed things in such normal terms as if you're just a part of our lives. Lord, forgive us for that. 
and help us to realize just how significant you are and just what extraordinary lengths you've gone to in order to fulfill your mission. Lord, make us responsive this Easter from the heart to a God who loved us that much that he would die in our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.